Father, in this moment, we bow. And God, we humbly ask that you would use your word to minister to our souls. We come with varying trials and difficulties, varying magnitudes, various challenges. But God, we serve you. And we know you are good and you're wise and you're able. And so we look to you and we wait upon you. And we ask, oh God, would you please use your word work in our hearts and our lives today. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to turn to Psalm 40 this morning. Psalm 40, as you, as you turn there, I would just tell you that as a, as a child, I was terrified of roller coasters. I, I enjoy them now, but as a kid, I was just terrified of them, and I, I had every excuse known to man for why I wouldn't ride any particular roller coaster, and growing up in Atlanta, if any of you have been to Six Flags Over Georgia, the two epic roller coasters when I was little were the Mindbender, still one of my favorite roller coasters ever, and the Scream Machine. I think it's actually the Scream Machine, but I called it the Screamer Machine. I don't know. But these two roller coasters were terrifying to me. I would not get on them, and then one day in, in high school, I went to visit um, my sister out in Texas, and she got me on to what at the time was supposed to be the fastest wooden roller coaster in the world. And I got on, I was nervous, I was scared, I was beside myself, got on, and, and that thing took me through what it felt like an eternity. It felt like it was 10 or 15 minutes long, it was probably about 15 seconds long, but it, you know, you hit the bottom of the first hill, and came down so fast my head was pinned down because I didn't know I need to hold my head back and so we came down a curve and I was thinking oh it's over and then there's another one and you get to this level and it's like you know you catch your breath and then here it goes again crashing down it was terrifying I was miserable in that moment well the reality is Psalm 40 teaches us that just like a roller coaster life is filled with ups and downs and twists and turns times that are times that we don't want to walk into, we don't necessarily want to approach, we hope aren't coming, but they come nonetheless. And when you're buckled into that roller coaster, you don't really have a choice for the next minute or so, right? What comes, comes, and you're going to go through it. Life is very similar. Many times we don't have a choice what awaits. We're going to walk through it regardless. Psalm 40 reminds us that these times of difficulty in life, while a roller coaster is over and ultimately roller coasters I enjoyed and had fun and ridden many, many in my life since then, but Psalm 40 reminds us that life's a little different. Those times which everything seems to drop out from under you, you go crashing down the hill, can lead us to despair, to distress, to depression. They're difficult. And oftentimes we think we've flattened out. We think we've gotten through it and we've, we've made it through and things are going to be okay. And, and here we go again. If you take your finger, you can hold on Psalm 40 and just backtrack to Psalm 35. Psalms 35 through 39 are a series of prayers from David. And, and in these prayers, he's crying out for deliverance from the Lord. 
And so if you, if you look at, at Psalm 35, Psalm 35 is a, a plea to God for, for him to contend against David's pursuers. Particularly in Psalm 35, verse 17, David cries out and he says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me. How long will you just keep looking on? Would you rescue me, Lord? In Psalm 37, Psalm 37 is a, a prayer. It says, to fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't, he's reminding himself, don't fret because of evildoers. And in 37 verse 7, you have a, a verse that you've probably heard at some point in your, in your life as a Christian. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. Don't, don't fret. Why, why would you fret because of evildoers? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 38. It's a, a prayer for God to deliver from those who are against David and from his own sin even. David is crying out to the Lord for, for deliverance from those who are attacking him, who are assaulting him. He's crying out, Lord, deliver me from my own sin. And he says in Psalm 38, 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Make haste, Lord, help me. You're my salvation. Would you come upon me? Psalm 39 we find David praying for deliverance from sin. Again, he, he's seeking the Lord's deliverance. He's seeking the Lord's work in his life. And in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 39, he says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. David cries out time and time again through these psalms. And then we come to Psalm 40. Where does Psalm 40 begin? What does he start by saying? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. It is David's testimony, all that he had been crying out for, all that he had been longing for, the deliverance, the, the help that he had cried out for. God had brought it. What he had prayed so for, God had granted to him. And so we turn to Psalm 40 today. And we do so really for, I would say, two primary reasons why we come to this today. One is that, that some sitting here today need to be encouraged in knowing that God will indeed deliver you from your afflictions. Whatever it is that you find yourself in the midst of, you need to hear a word of encouragement from the Lord that He will indeed deliver you from this moment. The, the second reason is that the rest of us need to be reminded that in the world, afflictions will come and go like the hills of a roller coaster. They will come upon us. We'll get past one and another one will come. Affliction just comes and it, it's something that we travel through and we roll through as we walk with the Lord. I want us to just hear Psalm 40 as a, a whole. We've read sections of it. I want us to just hear the psalm as a whole to get it in our mind as we begin to look at it. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, 
who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever Preserve me, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The Psalms are loved by Christians because they they give us this kind of peek into the hearts of God's people. They give us kind of glimpses into people whose walk with the Lord took them through all sorts of difficult situations. And so we, we hear the psalmist writing throughout the 150 psalms that we have in the, in the canon. We hear them speaking of rejoicing, great times of rejoicing. We, we hear them expressing anger. We hear them expressing and lamenting of hurt and expressing despair, depression, and longing for answers from the Lord. And here we come to Psalm 40 and and we're invited into the the despairing heart of David. We're invited to to hear of David's despair. And we don't know the particular incident that he refers to. We We don't know exactly what's going on in this moment. But we know that what we have here is we have a testimony of God's help to a weary soul. A testimony of God's help to a weary soul. David says there in verse 2 that he found himself in a pit of destruction. A pit of destruction. You might remember, if you study the Scriptures, you might remember the the study of Joseph, right? His brothers threw him into a pit in Genesis chapter 37. We also have the the account of Jeremiah being thrown into a a muddy cistern. And he finds himself in a, a physical pit. This probably isn't what David speaks of here. We don't know of any time in David's life where he was thrown into a literal pit. 
And so he's likely referring something to kind of more along the lines of, of, the, of the pit of depression, of being betrayed by his own son. Or maybe he's, he's speaking of regret of having committed adultery. Or, or maybe it's the guilt of having murdered someone. Or perhaps it's the uncertainty of having to wait on God's timing, even though he had been told that he was to be king. Perhaps it's the, the, the pit of, of, of being threatened by opposing armies and enemies. Maybe it was the, the pit he found himself in when, when Saul was chasing him. The, the hurt that that would have caused. The one that he had battled alongside of. The one that he had faithfully served. The one that he had written music and played for. Now pursuing him, seeking to kill him. Maybe it was the pit of a, the affliction of just hearing false accusations and narratives about who he was as king and what he didn't do or what he did do, undermining him. Maybe that was the, the pit he referred to. Or it could have been the pit of despair and lament that David found himself in as he cried out over the death of his infant son. David found himself in a lot of pits. These are pits that we can identify with, aren't they? Have you ever found yourself in one of these? Have you ever found yourself in something you would say, this is a pit of despair, a pit of destruction? Have you ever found yourself when, when somebody says, how are you doing? And you just can't honestly look at them and say, I'm doing great, I'm doing good. Because you feel the burden of the miry bog that David refers to in verse 2. This pit of destruction, this miry bog. Now, I want to give you five different pits that are pretty common for us to find ourselves in. Five different pits that we can find ourselves in. Here's the first one is the pit of sin. The, the pit of sin. We have to acknowledge that there are times that our own sinful choices put us in a pit. Our own sinful actions leave us in a, in a miry bog. We know here in verse 11 of, of Psalm 40, David or actually verse 12, David refers to his own iniquities. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. He goes on to say that his, his own heart fails him. It was his own iniquities. We have multiple references of David lamenting of his own sin. The, the most common, the most known perhaps is Psalm 51. When David is confronted with the sin that, that he committed with Bathsheba, an act of betrayal, of adultery that led to lying and murdering, a failure of leadership. And so David cries out to the Lord in Psalm 51. It's a, the psalm of repentance that he, he seeks the Lord and cries out to him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me Thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. So sometimes when we find ourselves in a pit and, and realize that these pits we talk about, these, these pits are kind of the root that causes all sorts of things. These pits may be the pit of sin, but it can usher forth and, and, and result in depression or despair or just being downtrodden or a, a hardness of heart or, or all kinds of different consequences. 
we find ourselves in the, the, the pit of sin, we need to look prayerfully. Or in a pit, sorry, I should say. We find ourselves in a pit, we need to first look carefully with wisdom and humility in the mirror. We need to look in our own heart. And we need to look and, and ask ourselves, is the pit that I'm in, is it due to my own sin? Is it due to something in my life that I've become entangled with? Is there a bitterness within me? Is there anger welling up within me? Is there a covetous heart? Is there lustful eyes? What is it that has tripped me up and entangled me and left me in this pit, in this miry bog? So the first pit would be the pit of sin. The second common pit I would say that we can find ourselves in is the the pit of failure. If you've lived long enough, you know that failure is simply a part of life. We fail. Hopefully, we learn from those failures. But we know that we experience failures, and sometimes what we don't realize is that failure can leave us in this pit of despair and discouragement. It can really knock us down. I think of Peter when I think of the the pit of failure. Here of Peter, this bold disciple, really some would consider the leader of the disciples, right? And what does he do in in the moment in which he's called upon? He betrays, he denies the Lord three times. Not just one time, he denies the Lord three times. And and Christ had told him that was going to happen. No, 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 that's not going to happen. It did happen. And we read about that in, in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, 75, you know what Peter's response? He had failed his Lord in that moment. And he went out. Here's his response. He went out and he wept bitterly. This disciple, this bold, outspoken follower of Jesus who had walked beside him, walked to him on the water, who had seen his great works, denied him. He failed. He failed in that moment. The failure is not the end. Failure is not this bottomless pit of doom. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we continue reading in the Scriptures and we come to John. And what does John do? And, or what, is, what does Jesus do in John 21, verses 15 and 19? He restores Peter. He calls him to feed his sheep. Peter may have failed, but Peter was not doomed. Jesus didn't just cast him aside. But sometimes the pit of failure can send us into this tailspin and put us in this miry bog where we think we just can't get out. We're shackled by the shame. We're shackled by despair and depression that comes when we see and know our own failures. The third pit that I would say is the pit of unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. We, we all have things that we expect, but the pit of unmet, unmet expectations happens when what we expect to happen doesn't happen. And so we're disappointed, and then that disappointment leaves us in a pit. I I think this pit of unmet expectations is really rooted in the idea that I know what is best. I know what should happen. I know what would be best for me. And so when those expectations are unmet, we struggle. We find ourselves in a pit. Instead of trusting God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's sovereignty, God's kindness, instead our expectations are unmet and we wallow around in the pit. Think about the Israelites. Think about them, what they, they thought would happen when Moses leads them out of Egypt. They, they had a certain level of expectation of what they thought it would be like as, as Moses leads them out. 
and they get in the wilderness, and then what do they start to say very soon? Their expectations are not met. And because their expectations are not met, what do they lament? Oh, it would be better for us to be back in Egypt. They're despondent. They rebel. They sin against the Lord. Their expectations of what that should look like were not what it looked like. Think about just the Jews in general. Think about their expectations of the Messiah. They expected the Messiah to come and to to have a certain rule, be a, a conquering Messiah who would cast out Roman rule, overthrow Rome. But it wasn't God's plan. Unmet expectations can leave us in a pit. We have to be careful that our expectations align with Scripture. We hold our expectations loosely, and we trust God's wisdom and His goodness to us. A fourth pit, I would say, would be the the pit of circumstance. The pit of circumstance. Life is filled with trials and tragedy. We talked about that at the beginning of the sermon. Each one of these trials and tragedies can leave us in a pit. Something comes upon our life that we never planned for, that we certainly would never choose to walk through, and it leaves us in a pit. It leaves us mired in the bog at the bottom of that pit. Think of Job. Job, the whole book, chapters 3 all the way to verse thir- or chapter 31, is 28 chapters describing the pit that Job finds himself in. It's Job pleading with God, presenting his self, his case to the Lord, all because of the circumstance that came upon him. Job's problem was that he was seeking to look at his own life to justify himself and why he shouldn't be in this pit, why this shouldn't happen. He's looking at himself. He's trying to prove his own innocence. He's declaring. He's arguing with God until he's called to account by the Lord. God speaks to him. There's a pit of circumstance. I think the pit of circumstance really bogs us down in two ways. One is when we allow the situation to overshadow God. We allow the the situation to be bigger than God to where everything that we see in life, everything that we then navigate in life is seen and navigated through the filter of that circumstance. Even the the very um, character and ability of God is determined by what happened in that situation or circumstance. And it can bog us down. The other other way that it bogs us down is this, is that we allow circumstances to change who God is. So something comes upon us, and because the circumstance happened, then we start to believe that God just can't be good and loving. Surely God's not really in control if that happened. So we allow circumstances to, to bog us down, to forget who God is, or to forget what God does. We allow them to change us. The solution to both of those is the same, that, that we must look to God, never taking the eyes of faith off of Him. Never looking away from Him, but trusting Him to be who He always has been. Listen, we cannot forget, in the midst of pits of circumstance, we cannot forget The truth that God is immutable. God is immutable. That is a big word for saying that God never changes. He never changes. He is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. No matter what pit you find yourself in, God does not change. 
God is who he is today, and he will be who he is tomorrow, and he is the same as he was yesterday. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The pit of circumstance does not define or change God's character. It doesn't define or change God's character. So no matter what pit you find yourself in, if it's a pit of circumstance, it does not change who God is. It does not define who God is. The last pit, the fifth pit that I would say is the pit of spiritual droughts. The pit of spiritual droughts. The the times when it just seems like God is silent. Where you're, you would say, I'm just spiritually stagnant. Just, just dry. These have been some very hard times for me to go through. In my own life, to, to go through times where, where it just seemed like God was silent and, and you sit down and say, God, would you please speak to me by your word and would you teach me? God, would you, would you just stir within me deeper affections for you? And you open up the word and nothing. Nothing. It can be discouraging. It can be hard. It can be difficult. You can find yourself in this miry bog of, of despair and depression. It's what David did in Psalm 13. We'll look at Psalm 13 a, a couple times. But, but Psalm 13, 1 to 4, Peter, or, uh, David cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider, answer me. Oh, Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Do you hear? David, he's filled with sorrow. He he cries out. He he thinks God is hiding his face. How long are you going to forget me? Are you going to just continue forgetting me? Are you going to just continue hiding your face? from me he he wanted an answer he was praying and praying and praying wanting an answer from the lord and it didn't come how long how long he says must i take counsel in my soul how how long am i going to have sorrow in my heart all the day like i wake up and i'm filled with sorrow i lay down i'm filled with sorrow Are you going to just keep hiding your face, God? Are you going to keep being silent? Oh, friend, if you've never been in this pit, it can be a very, very dark and trying pit. It can absolutely be overwhelming when you're longing for this refreshing quiet time and answer prayer, learning something that stirs your soul deeply, hearing the Lord use His Word to speak powerfully to your soul. It's not there. You just pray and pray and pray, and it seems like God is silent. It's hard. It's hard. It's a pit that demands that we draw deep upon our faith to remain faithful to Him, believing that He does indeed exist, and continuing to use the means that He's given us to draw near to Him. It, it, it causes us to drive down deep. It causes us to hunker down and, and really just kind of anchor ourselves in the Lord. But it's hard. It's a pit. 
Let me just encourage you with an observation at this point. If or when you find yourself in one or more of these pits, who wrote this psalm? You, you can say, who wrote this psalm? David. Now, who was David? David was the beloved king of Israel. He's the man that's described in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. He was the young man filled with such faith that he charged Goliath when everyone else was fearful because he had defiled the armies of the Lord. And he charged in the strength of the Lord, confident that the Lord would deliver him and win the victory. This David is in a pit. A pit of destruction in a, a miry bog. And likewise, it's the same. Job is described as a righteous man, but yet he finds himself in the pit of circumstance. Peter, the bold disciple who expresses and preaches such confident sermons and acts, fails the Lord. No one is immune from a pit of destruction. No one. There's no one sitting in this room, this pastor included, that is immune from finding myself or yourself in a pit. Despair and depression can come upon you. The circumstances of life can overwhelm you. They can rattle you to your core, to where you find yourself just crying out, God, how long? God, when will you just speak to me? Just make yourself known, Lord. And I don't think I can take it anymore. Would you please deliver me? Deliver me. No one is immune from this. And it doesn't mean that if you find yourself in a pit, it does not mean that you're not truly a believer. It doesn't mean that you've been forsaken. Brothers and sisters, dark nights of the soul are common to believers who travel the paths of life. They're common. We have them. We go through them. If, if you're living under the illusion that there's someone in here because you look up to them or respect them so that they've never been through any kind of pit of destruction, then you need to wake up. That's one of the questions that I'm asking Beverly and Wanda and Bertrice tonight is, how has God used difficulty in your life to grow you, to strengthen your faith? I'm not going to ask them, have you ever gone through a difficult time? That would be a waste of my breath. They have. There's no one in this room, if you're living under the illusion that, that the, the, the five pastors that, that serve you and try to shepherd you do so without trials and difficulties and struggles with life. Please wake up. We don't. We struggle through life. We pursue holiness. And we long for the Lord. And we long to draw near to Him. But there are days we find ourselves in a pit. Everyone finds themselves in a pit. Why do you think Bunyan wrote so much of the difficulties of life in Pilgrim's Progress? Why are there so many pits and difficulties and challenges that he wrote of? Because they're common. And some of you are there today. Some of you sit there going, I know they're common because I'm in one and I don't know how to get out of it. So what can we learn? 
what can we learn about the pits of life from Psalm 40? Here's the first thing. We need to notice what David did. What, what did David do? It's where we started, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. We don't have time to do this today, but go through this psalm sometime and notice the tense past, present, future of what's going on in this psalm. David's given testimony here of what God had done in the past. He said, I waited patiently. I waited patiently for the Lord. His heart was set upon the Lord and he waited patiently for him. I want to I put something up on the screen for you to see this morning. This is a, a long explanation of, of what that word wait means and what it looks like in Scripture and how Scripture gives us this picture of what it means to wait because so many times we think waiting is us just kind of sitting there twiddling our thumbs, right? It's just us sitting there and doing nothing. The picture that we see in Scripture as we bring all these passages that talk about waiting upon the Lord teaches us that to, it is to wait or to look for with eager expectation. Waiting with steadfast endurance is a great expression of faith. It means salvation. I'm oh, sorry. It means enduring patiently in confident hope that God will decisively act for the salvation of his people. Waiting involves the very essence of a person's being, his soul. Those who wait in true faith are renewed in strength so that they can continue to serve the Lord while looking for His saving work. There will come a time when all that God has promised will be realized and fulfilled. In the meantime, the believer survives by means of his integrity and uprightness as he trusts in God's grace and power. His faith is strengthened through his testing and his character is further developed. That's what it means to wait patiently for the Lord. When we hear the word wait, it implies what? It means a long duration of time. That it takes time. It, it implies and guarantees that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. But we're called to wait upon the Lord. And listen, waiting upon the Lord demands trust in Him. It demands that we trust in His wisdom, in His timing, in His goodness, in His sovereignty. Do you remember Lamentations 3? Lamentations 3 is, is the text where we, we, we get great is thy faithfulness. It's based on Lamentations 3, 24, I think it is, where it says great is your faithfulness. That's where that scripture comes from or that hymn, that hymn comes from. And it's a, a time where there seems to be no hope but yet he says, in this will I hope. And he looks to the Lord. He looks to the truth and the reality that, that God's mercies are new every day. Every day. It says, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases. Mercies never come to the end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. But listen, listen to what he says right after that. We so often stop there. Listen to what he says. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good to he who waits. Listen, God's goodness shines brightest, not in preventing pits of life, but in bringing us through them, going through those pits with us and delivering us out of them so that we might grow in him. 
God's goodness is shown in the fact that God uses pits of destruction in our lives for our good. Now, I'd be the first to tell you in the midst of a pit, you're never going, hey, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful. This is wonderful. Glad I'm here. God, use it. We don't think that. But we understand that God is great and magnificent and wise and able. His timing is perfect. His goodness is abundant and his wisdom is sound. And so he is greater than any trial or circumstance or pit that you can find yourself in. But know also that waiting on the Lord is not entirely passive. It's not entirely passive. Just flip back a couple Psalms to Psalm 37. We looked at it at the beginning. Psalm 37, waiting on the Lord is not entirely passive. We had this idea that waiting is, again, just us twiddling our thumbs. But, but we know it's not the case. If we're, we're building a, a last year or earlier in the year, we worked on my deck out back, and there was times where we ran out of a, a supply and we had to have something from Lowe's, and so somebody went to get it. So maybe I go to Lowe's to get it. But while I'm gone, everybody else isn't like, well, pff, nothing we can do now. Let's just sit down and stare at each other. No, there's things that can be done. We had to stop this, but let's work on this, or let's clean up, or let's get our lunch so that we can eat and be ready to work more. There's things that we can do in the midst of waiting. Waiting nonetheless. Waiting is not always passive. In 37, 1 to 7, David calls us to trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, be still before the Lord, to wait patiently for Him. But don't miss what he says in 37.3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. There are indeed things that we can do while we wait. We are to seek the Lord, draw near to Him, look to Him, walk faithfully with Him, continue doing good. What does this mean practically? It means that if you find yourself in the pit of sin, that means that we repent and we pursue holiness as we wait for the Lord to work and restore us, to work in us and through us. We don't just wallow there and go, oh, well, I'll just wait for God to do something. No, we pursue Him, we turn to Him, we look to Him. We look to Him, we eagerly expect Him to work in our lives. And we find ourselves in, in the, the pit of spiritual drought. The temptation, I can tell you this firsthand, the temptation is just to toss your hands up and go, well, nothing's happening. I'm just not even going to read the scriptures anymore. That's a waste of time. I'm not going to do it. You know, the problem is, the problem is that the word of God is God's appointed means to sanctify you. It's God's appointed means to conform you to the likeness of Christ. And so it's like, oh, I'm in the spiritual drought. So sitting it aside and never coming into the Word and just forsaking that discipline, that's the exact opposite thing you should do. No, you continue to look to the Lord and trust His means. You open the Word. Is it hard? Yes. But you do it. You continue to open the Word to trust His means and wait. For him to renew your spirit. So what did God do in David's life? David waited patiently. What did God do? God, in verses 1 to 3, he inclined to me, David said. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit. He set my feet upon a rock. He put a new song in my mouth. David waited patiently for the Lord. And God worked 
in his wisdom, in his timing, in his goodness. It's what we see and jot down in your notes. It's what we see in Isaiah 40, 27 to 31. Isaiah 40, 27 to 31, a passage that you've probably heard where the, the Israelites, they're, they're in exile. They're under the discipline of the Lord. They're under the rule of the Babylonians. They're in a pit of sin. They're in a pit of circumstances, both of them, due to their own sin. And God has brought these circumstances upon them. And God speaks comfort to them. In the very first verse, he says, comfort, comfort my people. He's speaking comfort to them. The path, he says, will be made straight. He says the path will be straightened. It will be flattened. The pits will one day be removed. And he says, in case you doubt this, the word of the Lord will never fail. It endures forever. All this is in Isaiah 40. Then he calls on his greatness, verses 9 to 26. He, he calls and reminds us of the greatness of the Lord that we would never forget him. And then we come to verse 28, and he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is hope. That is encouragement for those who wait upon the Lord. It's hope and encouragement that there are indeed times where we are faint, we grow weary. Some of you sit here today and you say, that is me. I'm weary. I'm weak. I'm in distress. I'm depressed. I'm in a pit. I'm in a spiritual drought. I'm entangled in sin. Wait patiently for the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Why? Because they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. He will lift you up. He will restore you. He hears your cry. He will put your feet upon a rock. It's hope given from the Lord. Here's what we need to see out of this. is the remainder of the psalm. Psalm 40. Now, we're not going to go through Psalm 40 at the same speed we went through verse 1 and 2. David waited patiently. God heard his cry. God restored him. He lifted him up. Now what? Now what? Just briefly, briefly overview the psalm with me real quick. We've read it. We've heard it. We've sung of it. Just think about what happens. David testifies to the fact that God came and delivered him. Right? He testifies to that in verses 1 through 5. In 3 to 5, he begins rejoicing in all that God had done. He says that the Lord put a new song in his mouth. He began, began singing anew. He, he was saying, I, I just have these inexpressible words. I want to sing of the Lord and his grace and his goodness. I, I trust him. And he says that he, he, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We, we see there, God, God's work in our lives will bear witness to others. When God lifts us up, others are impacted. Verses 6 through 8, David reminds that God desires obedience over sacrifice. He, he calls, he writes this out and says, listen, it's, it's sacrifice and offering is not what you've delighted in. The point is that obedience is what the Lord honors. 
is what he desires. This, this passage, verses 6 through 8, we don't have time for this today, but verses 6 through 8 is applied to Christ in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. This passage is quoted in relation to Christ and his sacrifices once and final for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And it's talking about in relation to his perfect obedience. You see, we, one commentator noted that the reason we have sacrifice is because we fail to obey. If we perfectly obey, there's no need for sacrifice. The interesting thing is, though, that Christ perfectly obeyed and he still made a sacrifice. Well, why did he do that? He did that because his sacrifice was not for himself or any sin he had committed. His sacrifice was for us, for our sin, on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. The sacrifice that I am owed, that I owe to, to, to go through, to make, Christ has made for me. He has died in my place. He has been my substitute. Jesus lived in perfect obedience so that he could die as perfect sacrifice. You see that? We fail in obedience and we make sacrifices. Jesus lived in perfect obedience and he died as the perfect sacrifice. That's good news. And David rejoiced in that. J David, in, in verse 8, says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. David delighted to do it, but failed in doing it. Jesus delighted to do it and perfectly did it. Jesus is the one we look to. In verses 9 to 10, David then declares and makes known God's good works. He, he, this is what he says. He said, I have told. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden. I have spoken. I have not concealed. He's declaring the goodness and the works of the Lord. He's bearing testimony. A redeemed heart produces thanksgiving that opens our mouths to declare the goodness of the Lord and to tell of his great grace. That's what happens when God works in our life. But now is what I want you to see. This to me is an important truth, what David does now. He cried out, Psalm 35, 36, 37, 38, 39. He bears testimony of God hearing him and setting his feet on the solid rock at the beginning of Psalm 40. Now look what he does. In verse 11 to 15, he looks to God knowing that his mercy would not be restrained from him, that his steadfast love and faithfulness would ever preserve him. Now look what David says. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. David declared the deliverance of the Lord. And now David's praying again for it. Why? Because in David's life, we see the reality of our lives. That we get out of a pit, and we often find ourselves in another. Life is a series of pits. Some of you are dated enough to remember the game Pitfall. In the 1980s, it was an Atari game. I see one person smiling, Matt, thank you. And you had this little guy, he just runs down the path. And as he runs down the path, there's all these pits you have to jump over. And there's logs rolling at you. And all these pits of destruction you try to jump over. You never get to a point where you're just running and having fun like it's a track meet. 
It's like a track meet with random camouflage pits, right? And the hurdles, instead of sitting there or being hurled at you, that's David. If you're expecting for God to deliver you and lift you up out of a pit and life is just going to be smooth sailing on that point, from that point onward, it's probably not going to be the case. But you can expect to God to be, for God to be faithful, for great is His faithfulness. And you can expect His mercy to be new every day. You can expect for Him to walk with you through that. But Psalm 40 teaches us that God is indeed good and He is indeed able. And He will lift us up out of the pit. And when another pit comes, God is still good and God is still able and God is still merciful. God is still wise. And we look to Him and wait patiently for Him. I want to invite you to stand. Our response this morning is to read together corporately the end of this psalm and to sing that our hope is Christ. Our hope is Christ. I want you to listen to these final two verses and think upon them for a minute. And then we'll say it together corporately. Hear the word of the Lord first. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's read this together and then we'll sing. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Let's sing unto him today.